I'm Alex Auerbach, and I'm a performance psychologist with experience working in the NBA, NFL, with elite military units, and Fortune 5 executives. I'm excited to bring you the Perform podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for teams, individuals, and organizations, so that you can be your best when it matters most. We're excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Inslicht today. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. I'm super excited to talk with you about your research. I think it's really interesting for coaches and leaders alike. Why don't you start by just giving us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So um, my name is Michael Inslicht. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Toronto. And broadly speaking, I, well, I study a few things. Uh, I study, broadly speaking, something called self-regulation. So how we set goals and then how we meet goals. And part of this self-regulation puzzle is, you know, concept called self-control or willpower, which I've studied a great deal. And uh, more recently, let's say the past five or so years, I've been studying the psychology of effort, um, what it is, uh, why people seem to dislike it, yet why they also, you know, derive meaning from it. Um, so those are kind of the, the main things I've been focusing on uh, the past few years. What is effort? Great question. I could spend probably a full paper just trying to define that thing. Um, effort is essentially the intensification of either a physical or mental process in the service of some goal. So colloquially, you can think of it as like pushing yourself, trying. Um, and again, it could be physical. So, you know, you're trying to beat your own record, uh, a running record or a boxing record, ping pong record. Um, uh, or it could be, uh, you know, like I said, mental or cognitive. So uh, trying to do that crossword puzzle that's just beyond uh, your capability and pushing yourself and really, really trying. So it's really about trying in the service of some goal that you might have. Awesome. Super helpful for, for kicking us off here. So the reason I reached out to you is I read a couple of popular press articles that featured your work talking about how people could come to value effort. And it jumped out to me because like we were talking about off air, there's sort of this like coachism that you, you can't really coach attitude or effort, you know, that that's something that people need to bring with them to work or bring with them to the field. And it's not the coach's responsibility. And your work sort of like, to me, shoots that down right away. And also seems very aligned with some of the other things we know, like growth mindset, right? Like people can actually give feedback that promotes certain behaviors. I'm wondering if you could just start at least unpacking, like what does it mean to teach people to value effort? Yeah, so it's interesting that you start with growth mindset because absolutely, I think Carol Dweck's work, a professor of psychology at Stanford University, um, my work is really consistent with hers. Her idea is essentially that we have these ideas, these lay theories in our head about um, how we improve and grow and, and, and what under, uh, you know, is underneath our performance. And she suggested that if you kind of have a growth mindset, a learning mindset, you're, you're better, you'll better deal with negative feedback and you'll kind of motivate yourself uh, more completely. Um, my work kind of you know, takes that as a starting point, but also notes something that um, economists have noted for, like for since the inception of, of, of the field, Adam Smith noted this, um, cognitive neuroscientists noticed, noticed this, and that is this, this, this thing called effort that we defined at the, the start here is aversive. People don't like it. If you give, uh, you know, uh, humans, adults, children, even like, uh, you know, other animals, like, you know, apes, rats, grasshoppers, 
I kid you not. Um, if you give you know any of these animals uh, a, a choice uh, of a reward, the same valued reward, but one takes a little bit of effort, one takes a little bit more effort, you know, uh, animals will explore both both options, but eventually we'll learn to avoid the high effort option. So if I need to walk 100 meters to get my delicious uh, Twix chocolate bar, or I need to walk 1,000 meters, I'm going to walk walk 100. Uh, of course. That makes total sense. And that's true, not just for physical effort, also for mental effort. If I need to do like a bunch of uh, uh, multiplication exercises to get some, you know, some money versus a bunch of addition, and addition is a lot easier than multiplication, I'd prefer to do the addition. Um, so effort is costly, people avoid it. And also when people are engaged in effort, it doesn't feel good. It feels unpleasant. It feels even people use words like stress and anxiety, um, frustration, sometimes even boredom around effort. So right from the get-go, effort seems to have this inherent cost, this thing that people avoid. Um, so, uh, and I think that's true. You know, even, there's even a law in psychology. Uh, psychology is a young field and we have very few laws, but one of, the, one of our laws is called the law of least work or the law of least effort. All else being equal, people would rather, or other animals would rather exert less effort than more effort. Now, where we come in is saying, okay, that might be true, but um, there's another golden law, uh, not from psychology, but from economics that suggests that people follow incentives, right? You incentivize certain things. People will do the thing that's incentivized. So you pay more money for something, people will do that thing versus the thing that pays less money. So where we came in, it's really, really simple. And we thought, well, what if we incentivized effort? Okay. What if we actually rewarded people for exerting effort? Now, uh, this might sound like a familiar idea, and it probably is to some extent, but we need to make sure we're, we know what we're incentivizing here. What we're incentivizing is the extent to which we people are willing to push themselves to their limits, okay? As opposed to incentivizing performance, okay? So incentivizing an outcome. So for example, um, just to draw that contrast out, let's say you've got a 12-year-old you know, or 13-year-old uh, child at home, like I do. Um, and, uh, you know, th this child's got a math test. So, and you want to be a good economist, uh, and you want to reward, uh, the, you know, this child's math, uh, you know, with training, um, what you could do is say, okay, if you, okay, kid, if you get a, a, an eight out of 10 or above, I'll give you five bucks, right? That's, that's, uh, incentivizing performance. Or you could say something like, if you work hard, and if you practice and train and, and do all your homework in advance of the tests, and I don't care what you score, you can score a zero out of 10, you can score a 10 out of 10. I don't care what you score, as long as I see that you're exerting effort. And I'll give you five bucks if you exert effort. Um, so that's the contrast that, 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 that we're looking at. And essentially what we found is, you know, we conducted a series of studies, high-powered studies. By high-powered, I mean many, many people. Um, and we had people kind of, we, we, we showed in people that they, yes, in fact, most people dislike efforts. You know, if you give them a, cog a difficult cognitive task, they will avoid it, you know, for a certain amount of reward. But if we started incentivizing them to make effortful choices, we started giving them rewards for not how they perform on this cognitive task, but trying the harder one. Um, they, uh, not only do they choose the more effortful thing when they're rewarded. So that makes sense. Of course, if I reward my son for, um, uh, for practicing more, doing more of his homework, he will in fact do his homework. Okay. But I don't want to, I don't want to be paying my son forever. I don't, I, at some point I want that, hopefully that, you know, that drive that, that, you know, valuing of effort is internalized. And then he'll apply it, not just to, you know, the, the math test that I'm paying him for or the math exercise I'm paying him for, but his English homework, the next math test. So the real question is, will this generalize? 
once rewards have stopped, will it generalize? And I wasn't sure what would happen here. It just seemed to me our study is pretty short. It's only one session. Um, but we found some evidence that indeed it does. So even when we remove rewards, people are still doing the higher effort thing. But the key is they're also, if we give them a brand new task, a task they had not been rewarded for previously, they also are choosing the more effortful option. So it seems like um, if you incentivize people to push themselves, they can internalize it, at least for a little bit. And that internalization, because effort is a global sensation that applies to many, many different domains, it'll, it'll lead people to become more effort-seeking, even in domains where they were not previously rewarded. So that's a kind of nutshell of a study that, that uh, we're about to uh, publish. That's a big nutshell. And I, I like, there's so many things in here that I think are, are interesting. So there's, you know, the neuroscience perspective, which is sort of like reminds me a little bit of Lisa Feldman Barrett's work and the idea around managing allostasis and how doing something costly then needs to be replenished somehow. And so it would make sense why people might have evolved to avoid that a little bit. I'm thinking about some of the work around endurance training where people can actually consciously choose in a sense to give a little bit more effort. And this is one of the things that your work reminded me of, you know, these moments, particularly in sports where people can kind of choose to push themselves a little bit more because there is a really clear reward on the other end. Like I'm thinking about the marathon runner who magically in the last 200 meters sees the finish line and can now finish at a pace that they were not running the previous 25 miles, right? Because there's there's some really clear incentive here. And I recognize that's an outcome-based incentive, but you're still talking about the reward of giving more effort right here is finishing earlier. Um, and then I'm thinking about this, this last piece you're touching on, which is sort of very sportsy, which is this idea that like, you can, in fact, you know, teach people basically to value the process. And it doesn't have to be this sort of pie in the sky or, um, you know, overly like op psych kind of way of thinking about it, right? There's actual real data here that suggests you can train people to, to value the process. Tug on whichever of those three threads you want to. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of things in there. So maybe we'll start with like the second one, which is the uh, all of a sudden the marathon runner able to give a bit more towards the end. I find that kind of stuff really fascinating because um, that kind of uh, anecdote, which you see over and over again, which stops becoming anecdotes, becomes data, um, it suggests that our the limits that that we think we have, whether it be physical or mental, are in some senses, illusory. When I, and I'm, I'm talking about here, uh, these are more for endurance kinds of, uh, uh, you know, feats, whether it be again, mental or physical. Um, so, you know, uh, so here's, here's the, 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 the reverse example of, of the marathoner. And that is, so now I'm actually in a phase where I'm actually exercising pretty regularly, so that's great. Um, but I've had phases where I haven't. Um, and, and then I'd start up again. And, you know, that, you know, when, I, when you first start up, at least when I first start up, that first minute is agonizing. You're like, oh, I just can't do anything. I, I literally need to stop right now. I have the feeling in my head that I this is too much for me. And typically, I don't, don't listen to that voice, and I just keep on going. But that voice is the voice that's just telling you to stop. And um, the fact that you know that voice eventually gets you know further and further away, meaning I need to exercise for more and more time before that voice starts singing in my head, suggests that this is a mental block. It's a it's a, a cognitive limitation, right? It's not a physical limitation. So I think a lot of people think, oh, when you have these messages like the, the, the sore muscles, the, you know, that's there to protect you, to protect your body from breaking bones or you know, tearing muscles or what have you. 
And, and probably at, at, at extremes, the, the, that's probably there. But I, I don't think most humans ever reach that extreme where they're in danger of actually hurting themselves. So then the question is, how, do we, how can we hack that internal limit? Um, and I think, you know, the fact that we now, there, 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 are now, there now exists, you know, extreme marathon runners, ultra marathon runners shows that, you know, really we can push the, the limits of, of human performance. Um, so I think that's kind of magical, you know, suggests that the limits are psychological, not physical, and that means it can grow. It also means it can shrink. Um, but uh, the fact that it can grow uh, is, is, I think, really, really optimistic for people who want to, who do want to increase whatever kind of uh, output they want. Um, and it's just a matter of kind of like learning to value it or learning that the limit, don't listen to that voice that's telling you to stop. So I think that's um, something that I, that I find endlessly fascinating, that, that, that notion. Um, and I'm forgetting now, you're, 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 you mentioned the, the, the third thing you mentioned, I'm forgetting now. Yeah, I'll, I'll double back to that in a moment. But I think, you know, the other piece that's interesting to me about the one you're hitting on is like physiologically, you know, we also know like if you're doing an endurance workout, for example, and you choose to increase your intensity, your body actually starts to rely on different energy sources and things too, right? And so it's this cognitive process where you're making this choice, but your body actually like adapts to give you what you need. It's not as simple as you just like constantly coaching yourself into pushing further and further. Your body actually has figured out, you know, at least in the case of endurance sports, right? Like, oh, okay, we could rely on a different fuel source right now. And that might help us maintain this speed. I think that stuff is super interesting, but yes, you know, to your point, you know, and there's, I've seen different numbers, right? I've seen 30% at 30% of your capacity, your brain starts to send signals that you should quit. Right. Um, and, but you know, the premise holds, which is that in large part, maybe our brain is designed at least initially to protect us from perceived harm. Although to your point, like there's nothing really bad going to happen here at mile five, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. For sure. I mean, it's actually a mystery among scientists uh, about why, why we have these limits. So why do we feel like, uh, why did I feel like I need to stop after a minute? Why do you need, why do most people feel that to stop after 20 or 30 minutes? Um, and there are lots of theories bandied about, but there's not there's no agreement yet. So one, one possibility is the one that come, I think comes readily to mind is like, oh, we're going to run out of energy, right? And uh, the, the, the brain especially, but also the body, we need to preserve energy so that we can you know, maintain basic functions, especially for the brain, right? If, you have, uh, if your brain doesn't have enough uh, calories, you're, you will die. Um, so, uh, but, but it turns out that we, are, we never even approach the limit of not having enough calories, especially in the brain. The brain has, has special mechanisms there to ensure there's always extra, you know, uh, uh, calories around floating to feed it. Um, so then the question is, okay, if it's not about energy, then what is it? Maybe it's some sort of evolved uh, mechanism from our past when, you know, in our, in our ancestral past, we, we lived in a, a scarce uh, resource environment where there weren't a lot of calories to be had, calories were expensive. So maybe the, our body was built to preserve that as well. Um, I also don't think that's, that's probably right. Um, so I, I think it, it, I think we have to probably stop looking at the body and looking more at the brain. It seems like our limits are central uh, nervous system mediated, right? It, 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 it's our brain telling us not to do something. And it's not that our body doesn't have enough resources. So the question is why? And there's some, uh, some other theories out there, but we still don't really, really know. Yeah, um, Alex Hutchinson, who's also here in Toronto, wrote a great book called Endure. And when I was speaking with him, you know, he, he sort of told me like the main take home here is effort is the master switch, right? Like all these other things 
you know, boil down to like this cognitive control you have over your effort. There's a little bit more you can do. So let's double back to effort. So the third thing I highlighted was, you know, and I think this is really prominent in sports, but I think it's true in business too. It's the way we've often conceptualized incentives, right? Is to think about the thing that we want. More sales, hit your quota, win this game, score X number of points, become an all-star, hit 80-something home runs. And that becomes the thing that we reward. We don't really reward the player who shows up and does the work to get to that point. We're not rewarding the work, right? We're just rewarding that. And we sort of put it on, on the athlete or the employee, like, oh, they'll figure it out, right? They'll figure out what resources they need to hit the quota if it's really important to them. They'll do what they need to do. And I'm like, well, maybe, but some people might not have been raised in an environment that rewarded effort. Some people, you know, all these things I think are true. So I think the process, the rewarding the process is a really interesting outcome from your work. And I guess I'm wondering if you could tell us how, right? Like what would someone say? How would we incentivize them? What would it look like practically to be incentivizing effort as part of the process? Yeah. So it's actually, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, it's a good question because, um, it's actually hard to quantify what effort looks like. It's hard to measure effort. It just is. Like, um, I can't just put an electrode in the, in the brain and say, oh, look, now this is how much effort you're exerting. No, <laughs> um, you, you just can't. There's, you know, yet there, are, there are various physiological outcomes that relate to effort. So for example, pupil dilation is one of them. Um, whether, you're, uh, whether you're frowning uh, is another one of them. Um, and of course, the, the brain areas that you know subserve those those things. Um, but but the, but the, but but you know, frowning and pupil dilation relate to many other things. So you, you can't measure it directly. So then it becomes very hard to to, to know how to reward it. Um, and then and conversely, uh, it's quite easy to measure performance. How many goals did you score? How many baskets did you get? Uh, how many, how much money? You know how many uh, you know new new clients did you bring in? Very easy to operationalize those things, and therefore it's easy to to incentivize them. Effort is much much harder. But now, um, in that study that I mentioned at, at the top, I talked about how when you reward effort, people um, um, internalize that and start exerting it more. Um, we have a couple a couple of control groups. One of them was when we rewarded performance. Okay, and what we found interestingly with performance was that. People, you know, they 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 did they 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 perform a bit better, not much better, mind you, but 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 a bit better. Um, but they did so by doing the easier task. So they ended up kind of like taking the the lazy route to just uh, uh, to get the reward, right? So then essentially they're kind of they hacked the system. Hey, I can get the exact same reward from the easy easier thing versus the hard thing. Let's do the easy thing. And you can imagine the same thing with you know like any kind of uh, outcome that's in incentivized. Um, maybe there's you know you you uh, what, what's the term in education? It's kind of like teaching to the test, right? So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna learn the outcomes that that that, are, that I'm being tested on as opposed to the process. This that's really what we care about. So um, by rewarding performance, not only are you um, not rewarding the right thing, effort, you also might be kind of cheating yourself in the end. So how now you, 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 you know, you, you ask the question, how can you actually reward uh, effort? I think there you have to do the hard work of figuring out what are markers of effort, right? So what are the things that you think relate to effort? So in a sports performance, it might be um, uh, 
it might not be that hard, although even then it probably is not so easy. Um, so you can be like, okay, how many, you know, how much time are they spending in the gym? So it's just like, you know, it's not about goals or baskets. It's like, how much are you working out on, on the various kinds of, you know, things that your coach is asking you to do? How much are you practicing those things? Now, of course, even there, it's not great because you can, you can practice and be half-hearted about it and not exerting effort on it. You're kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, mailing it in or you can try hard. So there might be a case where there can be direct observation of the extent to which, you know, a, a person is, is exerting effort as well. Um, so, you know, so that would be the, you know, these are some ways. So figuring out what are the processes that you care about uh, and how do they reflect exerting effort? You could also even ask people. Now, of course, people know if they're being evaluated on effort, they're going to give it the maximum. But you can look at within-person changes and how much they think they're pushing themselves. And no one's pushing themselves 100% all the time. Um, and it's probably not advisable. Uh, you want to have some some ebbs and flows there. Um, so you can kind of monitor that by even uh, by, by even asking them. But again, there are things. So sales is another one. How many calls is someone making? Right? So not only sales, but how many calls? How many new leads have they generated? Um, you know, for, for schoolwork, uh, how many books have they read? How many hours are they, are they, pra are they doing practice uh, exercises? Um, that kind of thing. Um, so th these are the kinds of ways you can kind of incentivize the, the process as opposed to the outcome. But again, it's not easy. It's much easier to, to quantify, you know, goals and assists and baskets. Sure. Although I do think like, as I'm listening to you talk about it, you know, one of the ways I might think about it is, Often in these contexts, like a sport context, right, you build up basically a, a strong working model of each player that you have, and you kind of know what good looks like from them and what not so good looks like. And so what you can start to figure out is what does it actually look like when someone is not trying hard? And then what is the opposite of that? And then can you reward those things, right? So you see when Johnny checks out, and so you make note of that a few times and then you see, oh, Johnny made the decision not to check out right now in a time when he would have ordinarily checked out. Here's a good time for me to jump in and pat Johnny on the back for not checking out, right? And coming up with a positive way to frame it. Like, hey, I noticed you tried a little bit more right there. Great job, keep it up. That's what we need to see. You know, little things like that seem like it would work in a high touch context where you have the opportunity to build a working model essentially of, of how everyone is a performer. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the key there would be, uh, yeah, so re it's rewarding, rewarding the positive, not necessarily uh, uh, penalizing the negative. Okay. So, because we know that the, the punishment is, is not quite nearly as effective as, as, as rewards are. Um, but, but also it's, you know, for a coach, um, I think there are some quandaries, right? Because what if, you know, a, a player is checked out, but yet, you know, does amazing in the game? gets a hat trick in hockey or gets like, whatever was it, uh, you know, 20, 20, 30 points, but is like barely, barely involved. Um, you know, the coach would need to not reward that player despite them actually achieving the thing that they really, you know, that, that, that you know, that he wants or she wants them to achieve. So that's where it becomes a bit tricky. Uh, but yeah, you don't want to send them, you don't want to send the wrong message to the, to the super talented player who's just coasting. Um, and getting getting all the good stuff, but not really trying. Um, so that, that, that becomes difficult, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, as I'm listening to you, it reminds me of some of the conversation that swirled around Leo Messi for some time, which is like, you know, he doesn't really run that much. You kind of watch him play, but he's not lazy. He's efficient. And, and I think there's a difference there, um, you know, or being, he's not doing something that you wouldn't ordinarily reward, right? So like, 
it's hard for me to imagine a 30 point game where someone's kind of checked out, but it's not hard to imagine a 30 point game where someone's selfish. And so maybe what you're choosing is the value that you're prioritizing, which leads me to this other kind of thread that you've done some work on, which is how people make meaning of effort um, and how people come to sort of like, you know, ascribe value to that. So tell us about your work in that area. Yeah. So this is, um, uh, you know, springs nicely from our, what we've been talking about thus far, and especially, you know, I said at the outset about how economists and cognitive neuroscientists tend to view effort as costly, something that, that people avoid. Um, so we we started noticing that, uh, you know, in these, like the, these big, especially economics is like all about costs. Um, but in social psychology, uh, effort has also been studied for, for a few decades now, but it was always seen as like, you know, there's some, there's some positives to it. And one of the biggest theories out of um, social psychology is a theory called cognitive dissonance theory. And that's this notion about like, you know, when you have inconsistent thoughts or cognitions, you feel weird, um, you feel uncomfortable, and you have to resolve it somehow. Okay. Um, now, um, one way you can resolve it is by convincing yourself that, you know, one of the cognitions is more right than the other. Now, this comes out with effort in the sense that, so uh, there's actually a really neat study um, uh, done actually not that long ago, although the, the, the concept is, is, is quite old. And this study is, uh, uh, is on something called the Ikea effect, okay? And the Ikea effect is essentially, well, we all know what Ikea is, you know, the, 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 the relatively cheap Swedish furniture maker where you've got to assemble your own furniture. Okay. Now, I actually kind of like assembling furniture. I think it's a puzzle and, and I, I kind of find it fun and mostly I'm successful. Um, but I know some people really dread it. Um, so now if you ask people in advance, uh, would, you, would you like uh, to assemble your own IKEA furniture or would you prefer someone to assemble it for you, an expert who, who does this for a living to assemble it for you? Uh, and, and, and the cost is the exact same. People say, oh, of course, I'll take the expert one. I'll just take a built. I don't need to build it myself. Um, but if you have already, um, if, if you've already built now your Ikea furniture, whatever it is, okay. And then um, you're asked, you know, how much would you be willing to sell this to me? So I'll buy it back from you. How much would you be willing to sell it? Versus you're given, you're gifted the expertly crafted, the exact same piece of furniture by an expert. How much are you willing to, 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 you know, to sell this for? People consistently want more money for their own creations, okay? They've added value to their furniture that they've built themselves and they require more money for it. Um, even though on the end of the day, they, they still have the end product, which is the exact same furniture. And you could even say that probably the furniture they've built is, is of lesser quality than the expertly built one because on average, people make mistakes on IKEA furniture. Um, so, you know, at least after the fact, after we've exerted effort, people put a premium on their own effort. They, they literally add money to it. They think it's, it's, it's more worthwhile. And even if we leave the context of, you know, Ikea and how much money, uh, you, you know, you, you might ask, people tend to like those things that they worked hard for. So be after the fact they, they tend to like things more they worked hard for, but before the fact, not, not so much. So. One possibility about why we kind of have this kind of overvaluation of things that we've worked hard for is that it's a, an illusion. It's a cognitive illusion that um, you know, you've got to resolve cognitive dissonance. You've got to kind of make sense of why you've done this thing that's kind of weird and inconsistent with your own other you know, thoughts. So it's a way for you to, you know, uh, a way for you to resolve that, that, that dissonance. Um, but there could be other reasons why effort is meaningful and valued. Um, and that is that, um, so one, I think, real possibility 
is that unlike in the lab where, you know, economists and, and experimental psychologists, we, we really, you know, closely control rewards and efforts. And then we look at how much, how willing people are, are to exert effort for the same amount of reward. Um, in the real world though, effort and reward are often linked. Okay, so in the real world, not for everybody, mind you, and not for every circumstance, um, the harder you work, the more good stuff you get. Okay, so the more you practice at piano, the better you get a piano, right? Not, not always. Some people are just kind of born with that ability without practicing much, they're pretty good. Um, uh, animals, the same thing. So a foraging squirrel, um, the harder it looks for, for fruit and nuts, the more nuts it finds, the, the, the fatter it is, the more likely it is to survive. So what ends up happening is that even if effort itself is kind of this aversive thing that doesn't feel great, um, because it's consistently, regularly, associated with reward, effort becomes a secondary reinforcer. We start thinking about that, that kind of attention in your belly when you're frowning as, oh, a reward is imminent. There's kind of like, you know, Pavlov's dogs. Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs learned to salivate when they heard a bell, right? Why? Because that bell signaled that food was coming. So just the bell alone can lead them to salivate. And it's possible, and there's evidence that's consistent with this, um, that once we exert ourselves and push ourselves, we start expecting some good stuff too. So um, effort can start accruing value intrinsically. And like I said, it's not for everybody, right? So if you come um, from a, a background where um, your efforts are not rewarded, right? Where you come from a background where, you know, um, maybe your family has a tough time putting food on the table. Uh, maybe, you, have, you know, your efforts aren't recognized, then you're not gonna maybe learn that association to the same extent. Right, and it's also possible that in other cultures where the effort reward link is is not as tight, um, and also not as you know, um, we're also taught as a culture to value effort, um, so that also you know increases the valuation of effort. Um, other cultures don't might you know vary in this, so you might not have that same kind of uh, coupling. Um, but in any case, uh, it does seem to be that you know people. Um, uh, do have this association. And also, you don't, you know, you can just look at people's leisure activities and you see that the things that people, um, people derive real meaning from, pleasure from, um, are usually things that are a bit hard and challenging. So people don't typically find, you know, meaning from sitting back on their couch watching Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. But they do find meaning from, you know, you know, going windsurfing for a day. Um, and, uh, and I would argue it's not just because of the hedonic sensation of windsurfing versus watching Netflix. It's because one is challenging and harder, and it gives you this feeling of mastery and accomplishment, which you don't necessarily, it's hard to get those things. You, those are kind of, you can't get those for free. You can't get the feeling of mastery and accomplishment for free. You've got to try, or at least you typically have to try. Um, so that's where kind of the effort uh, and, and value link can come in as well. I really love that that message that you can't get mastery for free. I think it's a nice way of summing it up. And it's an interesting point I wouldn't have thought of in terms of how people spend their, their leisure time. I'm mindful of time. So I want to double back to two questions. The first is you talked about the Ikea effect and people coming to value something they've worked on uh, more than something they haven't. I wonder just at all if there's been any work kind of teasing apart some of this, like valuing the effort and increasing the value, actual monetary value of something you've built or put effort into from some of the work from say like Daniel Kahneman and colleagues where like you just give someone something and they happen to value it more too. Um, you know, so is what's the, the data there that sort of teases that apart? That's question one. And then I'll wrap up with my last one. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think so. The, the, the Daniel Kahneman effect is uh, something called the mere ownership effect. This notion that you know, once you you, you know, once it's attached to you, um, uh, you know, something has more value. Uh, so I think that probably does play a role in something like the IKEA effect. Okay, um, but uh, it turns out that you, uh, even if you exert effort for some, for, you know, um, that you then give to someone else, you give something the product of your effort, you, the, the, the effect still holds. If you see that someone else has exerted effort, it's not your effort, someone else has exerted effort. So for example, you get um, to, uh, in a study, you can get a piece of art. And, you know, one artist has worked hundreds of hours to, 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 for this. In another condition, uh, an artist has worked five hours for this piece of art, or as an AI. Now we have like uh, AI that creates beautiful art. Um, people value the the AI generated art or the the, the artist who only worked five hours much less than the same piece of art where the hundred hours put into it. So there does seem to be something there's this effort heuristic, this notion that if, if someone worked harder on it, it must be better. Um, so there, there's there, there's that too. But you know I don't want to discount the the, the mere ownership effect. That probably does play a role in in in, in some of these effects as well. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting though that that people still value something that someone's worked harder on, right? That there there is a difference there. I think that's noteworthy. So, my last question is: you get to like wave a magic wand, right? You teach everyone one thing so that people that they are working with, coaching, managing, leading, whatever, learn to value effort a little bit more. What's the one thing you're giving everyone to do? Uh, hmm. Well, you know, maybe I, I'll punt this a little one a little bit. I, I, I teach this class on um, the, the science of behavior change. And I read this, the, this uh, for, part, for part of the class, we read a few, few books. And this is one, in one of the books, a, uh, the author interviewed someone like you, someone who's a, a coach for, not a psychologist, but a coach for elite athletes. And uh, the, the author asked the, uh, this coach, what differentiates in your mind the elite athlete from the very, very good athlete? Um, and the nugget there was, I think it was really, uh, it really hit me. And that was um, learn to tolerate boredom. Learn to, 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 to be okay with, with, with boredom. And boredom and effort are, are related. They're related concepts. Um, but sometimes things that are harder also can be boring. And, but, but just like effort is aversive, boredom is also aversive. It might even be more aversive. People really don't like doing nothing. Um, and they, don't like, they like novelty. They don't like doing the re repetitive thing over and over again. So if you can somehow cultivate um, a way to appreciate repetitive things, cultivate a way to even appreciate boredom. Um, you might find yourself sticking with the hard things. You might find yourself sticking with the things that are repetitive, but lead to growth, lead to, you know, building physical muscles or, you know, metaphorical muscles. Um, so find a way to do that. I love it. That's a great answer. Where can people find you, learn more about your work, follow you if you're on social media? Yeah. So, uh, so my name is Michael Inslicht. Uh, you can, uh, my, I have a website called, uh, it's just www.michaelinslick.com. Uh, I'm hoping your show notes will put the spelling of my name, not an easy one to spell. Um, and uh, I am uh, on Twitter. I'm not super active these days, but I'm, I am on there. Uh, my handle is mInslick. So M-I-N-Z-L-I-C-H-T. And I said Zed, you can tell I'm Canadian. That's uh, right. Yeah. You slipped that one in there easily for the, the Canadian. We do have a, a fair bit of Canadian listeners, so they'll get it right away. For the non-Canadian listeners, that's a Z. For you. Yes, that's a C. <laughs> Dr. Inslick, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. This has been fascinating. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Perform Podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for individuals, teams, and organizations. Until next time, thanks for joining.